Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 306, General Slim Regroups, General Stilwell Retreats. Last time, what remained of Burma Corps had reached Imphal in India by mid-May. Sadly, for their horrendous ordeal, the men under General Slim were then told that they would have to provide their own defense while they rested. Fortunately, relatively speaking, the monsoons had arrived, so if the pursuing victorious Japanese wanted to continue the fight, they would have to take on more than just Slim's multinational force. A reprieve of a kind, it seems, was given to this latest defeated British-led force, which is more than can be said for most of the other Allied troops of Southeast Asia, now being held prisoner by the Japanese Empire. So as Burma Corps set up tents and settled in as best they could, they were to be reminded of an old military maxim. It can always get worse. First, their provisions, weapons, and equipment were meager, had been meager during the short war of Burma, which partially explains their defeat. But they were to find out Calcutta, a thousand miles away, wasn't much better. Indeed, all of India was lacking in material, with tens of thousands of superbly trained Indian troops being stationed or on active duty outside of their own country. Again, no help for Burma Corps. And it would be the officers who had been waiting on the Burma troops, who almost got themselves shot by their shabby reception, that reminded Slim's men that they were the ones who lost the material help they had started out with. Again, Divisional commanders Scott and Cowan had to step in to stop any bloodshed. But the ordeal was far from over for Burma Corps, as in what were the immediate intentions of the enemy? Would the seemingly superhuman Japanese soldiers continue marching through the monsoon rains to launch another surprise attack? If so, another victory was waiting for them. For, as the troops of Burma Corps settled down, fully 80% of them became ill, if they weren't already. And this mostly came down to having lost the will to fight. To come through hell, only to be treated in such a way, the men gave up hope, and this allowed the malaria, dysentery, and exhaustion to overtake them. A decent percentage of them would die 
soon after. For Commander-in-Chief India, General Archibald Wavell, this was just his latest setback. And since the Japanese might come into India at Imphal, and getting any other properly trained troops to eastern India would take a while, the CNC ordered the 17th Indian Infantry Division to stay in place, to be ready to deploy, along with some of the units of the 1st Burma Division. There was nothing else for it. With that being the case, Slim was forced to assess his army strength sooner than he wanted. The 17th Indian Division could still function as a division. It was just much smaller than it had been starting out, which could not be said of the 1st Burma Division. As they, the 1st Burma, had gotten closer to Imphal, the officers had released their Burmese troops, those that had not retreated, and told them to go home and rest. To show the Burmese that they were trusted, each man was allowed to keep his gun, 50 rounds, and was given three months' pay and told to return to ranks when the Allied force came back through this area. It was a gamble, but Slim's hope was that this faith would be repaid in kind. According to General Slim's account, almost all of these Kachins, Chins and Karens returned to the fight when the time came. Between the locals departing and the number of killed or wounded British and Indian troops, the 1st Burma Division was beyond repair. In time, the headquarters staff and remaining units would be sent deeper into India to be absorbed into the 39th Indian Division to be used as a training formation. But again, it was about to get worse. Slim had his staff, because he knew the question would be put to him sooner or later, to count up what weapons and materiel was left to Burma Corps. Of the 150 guns, all types, that Burma Corps previously had, they were now down to 28. Added to this were their remaining 50 trucks or lorries and 30 jeeps. As for the men killed, wounded, or missing, that number came to 13,000. Compared to the estimated number of enemy killed or wounded, 4,600, this was another category to be fixed and reversed if General Slim ever got a second chance. But then came the coup de grace. Getting his own orders to make for Calcutta, Slim turned his remaining troops over to Fourth Corps. Burma Corps was now a thing of the past. Divisional commanders Cowan and Scott walked with Slim as he said his goodbyes to his men, having been through the worst that any army could endure. Catching up to Burma Corps HQ in Calcutta, it had to be called something. Slim sat down and thought, his first chance in months, as to why they lost so completely. He wasn't looking for excuses to give to his superior, Alexander. Rather, he was seeking the causes of defeat and how they could be overcome. It didn't help that Calcutta itself was dealing with a severe outbreak of cerebral malaria, one that was bringing down younger, stronger men more so than the veterans like Slim. Either way, he took advantage of this quiet. First, there was the high-level and rather obvious lack of connection operationally and administratively between India, London's current obsession, 
and Burma, the backwater of the entire war. Then there was the low level, or rather ground level, literally ground level, of no roads between India and Burma. If an Allied army was to fight their way back and then retake Burma, they could not go in as they came out, with minimal bridges being harassed by the enemy on the ground and from above. The returning force had to be able to protect its own flanks and have their own chance to outflank the enemy when contact was made. Then there was the Chinese. Clearly, they had been held back by a higher power, a political higher power. But even if all those forces that had been allowed to come into Burma had reached the front, it might not have changed the outcome, for it was clearly proven that they would not listen to General Stilwell for long, and he wanted to fight. No, Burma would have probably gone the way of China, a whole bunch of maneuvering with little killing of the enemy, which was the only way to retake territory. And then there was the tip of the spear, or rather a question of its lack of quality, the very men fighting under Slim. The two divisions of Burma Corps, one trained to fight in the desert, the second marginally trained, were no match for the experienced enemy troops coming at them. As for the third dimension of the war, in the air, here Slim was not as downhearted as he could have been. Yes, to have had an air arm would have been tremendous, up to a point. For clearly the Japanese had the air to themselves, and their men on the ground were still handed a few defeats before it was all over. To be sure, Slim would like air support, but he saw it as icing on the cake. It was the men who had shown what they could do. All they needed was time to rest, properly trained reinforcements, the right weapons, and the right equipment, and then Slim had no doubt of the outcome. Next, there were the Burmese people themselves. Why should they fight for an oppressor against another potential oppressor? But Slim was not a politician. The best he could do was treat the locals with respect and value their lives, if they joined the ranks. The rest Britain's policies in the area was above his pay grade. But having the locals join the fight would not matter much if the tactical approach was not improved. Slim was open about admiring the Japanese for having troops who had no problem getting out of their trucks and moving through the jungle. It offered camouflage and allowed them to outmaneuver the enemy who were forced to stay on the roads as their trucks could do nothing else. And if there was to be a round two, Slim wanted what anyone would want who seeks victory, a clearly stated goal. This, more than anything else, can motivate people as they know what they are working toward, and it helps with morale versus a vagueness of continued battles and retreat. Then came the big question, how to defeat Japan's go-to method of victory, the roadblock. For now, Slim did not have enough troops to spread out his line to catch the enemy when they sent infantry running to a point behind the main fighting line. Next, Slim's men did not have the experience, as in jugglecraft, 
or of slipping through an enemy line, or safely clearing a flank to get in behind. This required practice as well. But even this early on, General Slim's mind was bringing the various problems together and finding that some of them, if properly treated, could solve other problems. For example, to move off of the road. By not relying on trucks, this would make his troops' movements less predictable. Next, if he ever got a few planes together, which Harold Alexander was working on, then surely they could drop supplies, making a future foray into the jungle that much more possible and independent. Also, if he could teach his men how to use the Japanese hook, as it was being called, the ability to outflank an enemy, only to set up a fixed position behind them, then his men would be better at spotting these moves as they unfolded, for it was much preferred to take on the Japanese as they tried to set up, rather than after they were all in place. But taking a countermeasure one step further, one of the definitions of genius, if that word may be used, was for Slim to turn a problem into an advantage. When and if battle came again, Slim had no doubt the enemy would use the hook again. So, if he could not stop it, how could he make it work for him? A few ways, actually. First, if the enemy was willing to reduce their punching power by having a certain amount of their own peel off to get in behind the enemy, then perhaps his troops in the front line should push harder there. Perhaps have a few more artillery pieces than usual, and while the hook was being set up, the enemy's front line could be destroyed. And lastly, why let the hook be successfully set up at all? If Slim was to increase his defense in depth as a standard procedure, then those enemy troops seeking to do a runner would find themselves running into ever more defending troops. Of course, all the above was woven into the paramount need of on-ground intelligence, which meant, again, getting the Burmese on their side another reason to treat them with respect. Overall, after his contemplation, General Slim had decided on two things. One, in the future, he would be more unpredictable, as it seemed to throw off the Japanese when something did not go according to plan. This they probably inherited from learning warfare from the Germans. And two, if he was ever in doubt again about what to do, he swore to himself he would always choose the path more bold. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. 
I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com The number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com That's YahooFinance.com By May 20th, the nightmare was over for Burma Corps, relatively speaking. General Harold Alexander turned over his troops to 4th Corps and flew back to London. His time in Burma was over. After talking to Churchill and the War Cabinet, it was decided that Alexander would head for Cairo in August for Operation Gymnast, the Western Allied invasion of North Africa. Ironically, General Joseph Stilwell had been selected for Gymnast during the Arcadia Conference, held in late December and early January. As the Americans were now in the war, Stalin was bombarding the Westerners for a new theater in the West. The Americans wanted to land in Europe proper, but the British knew that not only were the Allies not ready for such an undertaking, they didn't even have the landing craft for such an operation. Hence, it was academic. The compromise was to land in North Africa, to begin weakening the Axis hold there. So, Alexander was gone. Burma Corps, what was left of it, was in India, licking its wounds. General Lo Choying, the chief executive officer of the Chinese forces, he of the stolen train infamy that left Stillwell telling Slim, unfortunately he was not killed, was gone, which left General Joseph Vinegar Stillwell in Schwebo, 60 kilometers northwest of Mandalay, playing solitaire, metaphorically and literally. This was Stillwell's, as it was Slim's, low point. Everything that could go wrong did. Even the long-shot Doolittle raid of mid-April that would not only, hopefully, declare America's tenacity in prosecuting this war, but if everything went according to plan, deliver another 16 B-25s to Chenault's Air Force. That had gone bust. Back on May 1st, an American transport plane had landed in Schwebo, flown by officers of the ranking pilots of the newly created Assam-Burma-China Ferry Command, and their first mission directly from General Hap Arnold himself, the Chief of the Army Air Forces, was to proceed to Schwebo and effect evacuation of Stillwell and staff, most urgent. But things got off to a bad start when one of the officers said to Stillwell, still playing cards, General Arnold sent us to rescue you, sir. That was the good news. The bad news was that they, as they were flying in, had spotted enemy units only 20 miles from Stillwell's location. Not that these men could know this, but Stillwell had long ago decided to go out with the Chinese on the ground. Yes, the plan was to send some of them to India for training, but the general knew that if he took the easy way out, while his troops had to fight their way out, he could never look them in the eye again, and they would certainly be uninspired by this old, gaunt man who, in American parlance, talked the talk but did not walk the walk. 
and walking was exactly what Stilwell planned to do right next to his men. Of course, being a three-star general, not that he was wearing insignia, Stilwell did not have to explain himself to a couple of flyboy colonels, and he was not going to. He told the men his staff could fly out with them, but he would not. The two pilots assumed that this old codger did not understand air power, that it was the future of warfare, whereas Stilwell was worried about the here and now. To lose face in front of his Chinese troops was to lose everything. No, his immediate goal was to get to Michinar, about 125 miles to the northwest, by hook or by crook, but not by plane, and join his Chinese soldiers. Ordering most of his staff onto the awaiting, unarmed Douglas C-47 Skytrain, developed from the civilian Douglas DC-3, Stilwell told his men to find him a place in India where he could train his Chinese troops. You know what I want. Then he made his way 60 miles north to Wuntho. The idea was to get past the trains there that no longer worked, hence the tracks were blocked and proving that General Lo, the Chinese executive officer, had not changed much since stealing a train. When the American told him they needed a plan to get out, Lo said, Yes, return to me tonight at 8 p.m. When Stilwell returned, Lo's residence was empty. The lights were off. Now, this was simply more than bad form. Was it possible that Lo was trying to delay Stilwell long enough to hopefully, be captured. Perhaps that would satisfy the enemy, and they would give up pursuit of chasing the Chinese remnants still heading north. It was here that Stilwell decided the time had come to leave Burma. What little Chinese control there was of the area was breaking down fast. So, he would either make for Michinar about 200 kilometers north, or head west to India. By this point, the American general had with him a mishmash of vehicles, mostly on their last legs and about 100 people. 18 American officers, 6 enlisted men, 2 American doctors, 19 Burmese nurses, 6 Chinese guards, 17 people of a British Quaker ambulance unit, 9 cooks and porters, either of Indian, Malayan, or Burmese descent, a few British officers who had been left behind, some civilian refugees, an American missionary who fortunately spoke some of the local dialects, a correspondent who sensed the coming of an incredible story, whether Stilwell lived or not, and ever-present in war zones, stragglers. All things considered, Stilwell decided it could have been worse, for General Alexander had ordered a retreat and not a surrender, as had happened at Singapore and other places. Better to be free and on one's feet with a chance of survival than on one's knees, becoming a guest of the merciless Japanese. Sending a transportation officer, Paul Jones, who had trained with Stilwell in 1934 on ahead, the route, it was reported, was no better, nor were there any trains to be had. Indeed, during their last leg that got them to Wuntho, some of their jeeps began to give up the ghost. There was nothing for it but to bunch up 
even more, as a few trucks packed with Chinese soldiers were passed, and they made it clear with their rifle butts no one was welcome on board. Stilwell, ever thankful of his language skills, questioned what Chinese officers he could about what was up ahead. Between this and his missionary asking the same questions of locals, the general would avoid the Tamu Pass, used by much of Burma Corps near the end of their retreat, and instead go by a path further north. From what he could ascertain, it was rougher and therefore less traveled. Hopefully that meant by the Japanese as well. Going another 30 miles north by northeast, Stilwell's troops reached Indah. The last train was about to leave, fortunately heading the wrong way, and it was filled beyond capacity, as chaos was the order of the day. Soldiers were looting, civilians dying, and all this while everyone, shooter and shootee, were heading north. Stilwell wanted out of here fast, but he had to take a few days to gather up enough food for the journey, in whatever form that took. It was during this time that Stilwell learned that some of his men wanted to pay the nurses off and leave them behind. But the American knew what would happen to them, given the lawlessness of the times. And besides, he guessed that those nurses and their skills would be needed before this trip was over. The railway ran northeast out of Indah, again the wrong direction, so that's when Stilwell decided to head west, away from much of the refugees, and he would trust to the cart track serving as a road for as long as it lasted. Knowing their food would only last so long, and even less when the monsoons came, the general's last words before leaving Indah was, keep moving, don't stop for anything. But that very evening of May 5th almost saw this sad group of travelers lose a number of its members as a few trucks got stuck in the mud, only to have a frantic Chinese unit catch up to them. The Chinese, in trucks of their own, did not stop or slow down or even try to assess who was among the crowd. They simply kept moving, almost running over a few of Stilwell's charges. He ordered everyone to the side of the path and for the stalled trucks to be left behind. Continued forward motion was the only thing that was going to save them. But when Stilwell gathered his group the next morning, he would see 15 new pair of eyes staring at him as he stood on his jeep. They were British commandos who were even worse for wear than any in Stilwell's party. He allowed them to join, bringing his party up to 114 people. But this addition was worth it, as one of their number was a Major Barton, who had, by this point, been in Burma for many years. Like the nurses, his knowledge now became priceless. By the end of the day, May 6th, the group had come to the end of the road, literally, the trucks were abandoned, as was the last radio set. Before setting down this 200-pound box, Stilwell sent out his last message to Lieutenant General Lewis Brereton, commander of the 10th Air Force in India. He was currently getting the air unit set up while building an air route to China.
It stated Stilwell's location and his course, that his group had little food and surely would find none until they reached India. Further, he asked that food and porters leave from India with supplies to meet him at Homalen on the east side of the Chinwin River. Further, that tens of thousands of refugees and Chinese troops were on their way to India via numerous routes, and it would be advisable to stash food along the various pathways to avoid a humanitarian catastrophe. And if all went well, his group should be just shy of Homalin in three days. It ended with, this is our last message. Now, that message was for the British in India, whom Stilwell needed to make sure he and his survived the journey. As for his last message to Washington via Chongqing in China, the general was experienced enough to know to be more optimistic. He gave his location and said, We are armed, have map, and food. Chinese troops coming to India. Cheerio. Also on that evening of May 6th, Stilwell's group ran into two Chinese, let's call them thugs, with 20 mules. Vinegar Joe suspected that they were opium runners, but he didn't question the guys and how the Almighty sent help. The two men were hired, as were 60 carriers from a nearby village. On the morning of May 7th, it was time to get this trek started in earnest which meant it was speech-making time. Standing on an abandoned truck, Stilwell told all before him the following, All food was to be pulled. Any personal belongings that you have that you can't carry have to be left behind. They had 140 miles, or 225-kilometer walk, ahead of them with a river and a mountain to cross. And in order to stay ahead of the Japanese and the monsoons, they had to make 14 miles, or 22 kilometers, a day, period. Discipline was the only thing that was going to save them. And if anyone did not like what he had just said in its entirety, they would be given a week's worth of food and could go on alone. No one spoke up. He finished with, Many of you will hate my guts, but I'll tell you one thing, you'll all get out. Jumping down, Stilwell started his march, and his pace was the official army rate of 105 steps each minute. Yet even before the first day was out, many of the Americans were falling down. True, the month of May, just ahead of the heavy rains, was the hottest time in Burma. But that didn't stop the leader from being embarrassed by the lack of stamina of his countrymen. Each hour saw a five-minute break, which would be increased to ten minutes very soon, as few could keep up with this 48-year-old warrior. Then the inevitable happened. Malaria and dysentery began to spread among the walkers. The worst of these were loaded onto the already overpacked mules, but there was nothing for it. No one had the strength to carry another body. Then human nature, as in self-preservation, showed itself. That night, Colonel Williams' medicines were stolen. Added onto this were whole other levels of hell. Ants 
insects, leeches, blisters, infections, and the ever-present blistering sun. At one point, after another theft, probably by a porter who then disappeared, Stilwell read them all the riot act. They were either going to get through this together, or not at all. As for those that crept away, what do the group think their chances of surviving were? Being alone. One man would later record his thoughts during this sermon from on high. Jesus, even his campaign hat, looks madder than hell. Then Stilwell borrowed from the General Slim playbook, putting himself last in the chow line each evening, and by telling those around him stories as they walked. However, that last part could easily turn into a tongue lashing if the pace was slowed. Three days later, the Uyu, a tributary of the Chinwin River, was reached. Here, the mule train, put under the command of an American officer, backed by the Chinese guards, continued on foot. Stilwell and the rest climbed aboard river rafts that he had requested via radio and began heading downriver. During the journey, a bomber circled overhead, looking for the group. Fortunately, it was American, and it dropped supplies and medicine on the bank ahead of the rafts. But as the lead raft was about to come upon the boxes, locals ran out of the jungle, grabbed most of the boxes, and equally quickly disappeared. Fortunately, the boxes left behind had quinine to help with malaria. Jumping off their rafts at the right time, Stilwell and those with him walked into Homalin, near the Chinwin River. However, there were no supplies waiting for them. The why didn't matter, at least to the general's thinking. Survival was all. But for many others, including the Americans, the British, and some of the porters who were armed, their thoughts turned to self-preservation, and plans were made. Vinegar Joe could see it behind their eyes and hoped that good news would come soon to stave off a mutiny. It did, in the absence of enemy troops as they crossed the Chinwin River. As they were in western Burma, the porters were switched out for locals of the area, which suited Stilwell fine to have men who were not on the edge of mutiny. And these locals were strong which came in handy as they started up a 3,000-foot climb on May 14th. But as the group was getting closer to the heavens, the heavens matched this in the form of heavy rains. By this point, all, even Stilwell, was exhausted more than they could ever remember being in their life. And knowing how helpless he felt, the cantankerous American general looked around to get a sense of what the others were thinking by looking deep into their eyes, and what he saw surprised him. There was no more threat of mutiny behind their eyes. Most were, like him, beyond hope. No, not murder, maybe suicide, for who could bear much more of this? But before May 14th was over, Stilwell and company, looking like zombies many times over, was come upon by a British official named Sharp, and behind him were pigs for that night's dinner, a doctor, cigarettes, whiskey, and 400 porters. Stilwell, barely able to speak 
moved his mouth several times. As he could get nothing out, being in such shock, Sharp took over. I told you I was on my way, but it turned out that his message was in one of the boxes that had been stolen along the river. But most of Stilwell's jubilation evaporated when Sharp told him of the surrender at the Battle of Corregidor on the Philippines. The defenders of Burma, regardless of nationality, were not alone in defeat. There would be more of this trade-off of good and bad news. First, it's doubtful the Japanese would come this far. Yet the pace set by Stilwell actually had to be sped up to cover 15 miles a day because of the coming monsoons. At least there were ponies for some to ride and more food than Stilwell's troop could ever remember seeing before this walk had started. Imphal, India was reached on May 20th, and though it brought him some comfort, in time Stilwell would be told that his group was the only one to walk out of Burma without losing a single life. And true, the Allies had just lost another entire theater, but one reporter, upon seeing the American general as he came out of the jungle, felt sorry for the Japanese, as Vinegar Joe looked like the wrath of God and cursing like a fallen angel. And this falling angel was still enraged when his report was written for Washington. It contained nothing but venom for the British and the Chinese for their mistakes, as it was clear that neither side wanted to really win in Burma. Indeed, the report was so toxic that all copies were destroyed, ordered by General Marshall himself. What Chinese forces survived the retreat from Burma did so because of their desperation, the monsoons chasing the enemy, and by multiple Allied airdrops of supplies. Some went to India, some to China, but either way, they were pushed out of this latest theater, and this section of the Burma Road belonged to the Japanese. Of course, that was the reality, but that had little to do with the Chinese spin. Reports were sent to American correspondents from Chongqing that spoke of enemy units being wiped out in Yunnan, that Miemo was recaptured, and it was only a matter of time before these brave Chinese forces also retook Mandalay. First, none of this was true, and second, the American reporters all assumed that all these Chinese forces in Burma were under Stilwell, who apparently turned out to be another Napoleon and the man of the hour. Headlines read in the States, Stilwell's China troops trap Japs. Invasion armies in full retreat. Uncle Joe slams China back door. And this may explain why General MacArthur's reports were equally inflated. The obvious difference was MacArthur was writing his himself. Stilwell had been floating down the Uyu when his were written by someone else. The formerly scrawny, now emaciated Stilwell, he had lost 20 pounds on the trek, was flown to New Delhi and met by Wavell, Alexander, and Brereton. Then he met with the press. An hour into that conversation, Stilwell gave his own memorable lines. 
I claim we got a hell of a beating. We got run out of Burma, and it is humiliating as hell. I think we ought to find out what caused it, go back, and retake it. As for his supposed heroics of defeating so many Japanese armies a few days ago, that was conveniently forgotten by the press and by the conscience of the American people, as the country was militarily on its knees. The new world needed a hero. It needed hope. And MacArthur would soon fill that need, but many remembered what General Joseph Stilwell offered. Honesty.